0: Well, good morning. My name is Michael, and I have the privilege of serving as your life groups director here. We are in the middle of a series called A Retweetable Life. And the purpose behind this series is to give us examples throughout scripture of people who we can look to and emulate and, and do exactly what they have done. So this morning. We're going to look at uh, three men who boldly worshiped God. And it comes from the book of Daniel. But before we go there, I thought the scripture that we would read from this morning is actually from the, the book of Romans. And the reason I chose that is so that you can see, think of it this way, that the scripture we're going to begin with is a command. It's what we ought to do as far as when it comes to worship. And when we read the story, the lesson is on how we do that and gives us an example of that. So if you would please stand as we read the Word of God this morning. We're reading out of Romans twelve, verses one and two. It'll be on the on the screen there behind me. You can follow along as I read. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to pass the test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So for those of you who are following along with your sermon notes, you can kind of set those aside. We We'll get to those later in the sermon. I'll tell you when to pick those up this morning. As I was preparing for the sermon this week, I was reading the scripture and going through it, and I came to a particular part of the text that it made me chuckle. Um, It it reminded me of something in my youth, and I thought I would share it with you this morning. Um, Now, I have to admit this is a little bit embarrassing, and I have to admit something to all of you, that as a teenager in the 1980s, that I was in love with professional wrestling. (laughs) I I know, yes, thank you, there's one there that's willing to own it. I know it's silly, but I absolutely loved every week tuning into TV to see what the story was going to do, how the hero and the villain, uh, their story was going to interact, and as I would watch, I realized something that what made the story so good is the, the worse, the badder that the villain was, it made the hero that much better. And so there, you would see this play out that the villain would be just incredibly arrogant and pompous and you just, you really hated the villain in the storyline. How this would often play out is there would be a match that was taking place and they would put a weaker wrestler in the ring and then all of a sudden the villain's music would start. And the villain struts out on stage and there's pyrotechnics going off and the lights are flashing and this is a production. This is a big deal, it's pomp and circumstance at its finest. And as the villain would make his way towards the ring, All of a sudden, a group of other wrestlers would follow behind him, and this was his squad, his gang. And as the villain would enter the ring, you would see this group of other wrestlers encompass the ring and trapping the wrestler in there, making sure that the weaker wrestler had no chance of escape. And the match would start, and they would just beat the the snot out of one another, if you will. And uh, it was just... Horrible, horrible, and often what they would do is a villain would use a submission hold uh, to win the match. And what a submission hold is, is they would pri- place the wrestler in a hold, and it means that the, the other wrestler has to tap the mat and signifying that I'm weaker and I'm not able to compete with you. As a wrestler, it's incredibly humiliating. And so the villain loved to use this, and so he would use a signature hold on him, and the wrestler would tap out, and the match was over, and this other group of wrestlers would come into the ring cheering him on, and the villain had everything that he wanted at that moment. He had the victory, and he was being idolized and worshipped by all the other wrestlers, and that's exactly where we're going to enter our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Daniel 3. We're going to be starting in verse 1. And as we we get there, you're going to see how a king became as pompous and as arrogant as these wrestlers that I just mentioned. So in Daniel 3, verse 1, it should be on the screen behind me here. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king had made an image of gold the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. So that's approximately 90 feet tall. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Let me just pause there really quickly. So imagine this. This is the ancient world. This is 600 B.C. There are no tall skyscrapers. There are very few tall structures in the world at this time. And so Nebuchadnezzar is built this statue that's 90 feet tall. So as you approach Babylon and you were cr- uh, crossing the plain of Dura, you would see this golden statue. And as you got closer, it would just be taller and taller, towering over you. And as the sun hit it, light would just beam in every direction. And what it was saying is this is a nation of power. This is a nation that has resources. Don't mess with us. And so that's the context of this this image that has been set up. And in verse 2, it says, that Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the province were assembled for the dedication, of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You getting that Nebuchadnezzar had set it up? (laughs) Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. So I read part of that passage sarcastically, and I hope you heard that, that was intentional. This list is ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, this is a long, repetitive list. But we do have to pay attention to it because the author of Daniel did this for a reason. He wants to draw attention to what's really going on here. So a couple things that we look at there is that um, this, this is ridiculous. This is pomp and circumstance. This list goes on and on. Have you ever been to a parade that just seemed like it wouldn't end? Now imagine this, there are thousands of people gathered there, the king has his band so he can have his own intro music play when he's ready, and these people are going to worship. Now it's the people we have to pay attention to. You see, these just aren't any ordinary people, these are his leaders, his officials. What Nebuchadnezzar is saying is, if I can get my own leaders, to bow down and worship before me, then no one will have the bravery or courage to, to do otherwise. Everyone will worship me at that point. And so this is about power for Nebuchadnezzar. But on top of that, we have to answer the question of, where did this idol come from? Now we don't have time to cover it today but if we look back at daniel chapter 2 we would understand the context of this so just very quickly so you understand how we got to this point is that nebuchadnezzar is a conquering king and so he has invaded israel and he's going to do this in stages and this is the first time he's invaded israel and so he's gone in there and he's captured the best and the brightest israelites and he brings them back to babylon and what he's going to do Is he's going to give them babylonian names he's going to give them babylonian jobs he's assimilating the people into babylonian culture and part of that is to eliminate the knowledge of israel's god and so he has this idol that they're going to worship instead of israel's god and as he invades and he brings people in nebuchadnezzar has a dream one night And it's a dream about this very idol, and he can't figure out what it means. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls in all of his advisors, all of his wise men, and he's asking them what it means, and they can't answer. And then somebody remembers, you know, there's an Israelite who can interpret dreams. He has the power to do that. And so the king calls for him, and Daniel comes to the king. And Daniel, being a man of honor, he says king, I I don't have the power to interpret dreams. Only God can do that. And so Nebuchadnezzar shares his dream with Daniel, and then God gives Daniel the meaning of that dream. And Daniel then tells Nebuchadnezzar what that dream means. And listen to what Daniel tells the king. He says, you, O king, he's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, you, O king, are the king of kings To whom the god of heaven has given the kingdom the power the strength and the glory and wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all you are the head of gold head of gold at that point i think nebuchadnezzar checks out of the conversation mentally he's heard everything he needs to hear he's heard a prisoner a captive of his nation say that his God is proclaiming him as the king of kings. Well, it doesn't get better than that, right? I mean, he's, he's being told that by God, he's the king of kings. But Nebuchadnezzar fails to hear the rest of what Daniel has to tell him. You see, Daniel tells him that Babylon will be conquered by Persia and then by another nation, which is referred to, it'll be Greece, and then another kingdom, that'll be Rome, and then finally a kingdom that has no end, and that'll be the kingdom of God. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't hear any of that. He only hears that he's the king of kings, and in his arrogance, his pride swells, and he recognizes that Daniel can not only interpret dreams, but he is a wise man. And so he takes Daniel, and he appoints him as second in command of his entire nation. So he gives Daniel incredible power and authority. And with this, Daniel remembers that he has some friends that could probably help him administer the government. And so he talks to the king about it, and Nebuchadnezzar agrees. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are then brought and work as administrators for the nation of Babylon. Now, as we jump back into our story today in the text in verse 3, we. We let, where we left off there is that the nation had assembled, and all these rulers are there, and they're going to worship and bow down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and some Chaldeans, that's a people group that lived in that area, some of the Chaldeans came forward and told the king, they said, oh great king, see they're trying to butter him up with flowery titles, They said, oh great king, there's, there's some men who won't bow down and worship your idol. And the king says, well, who? Who would do that? And they say, well, namely, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king remembers these three, remembered how he appointed them into high positions in the government, and he's furious, and he orders these men to be brought before him. And as we pick up the story in verse 14, it'll be on the screen behind me, you can follow along, to see how the king responds to this. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my God or worship the golden image I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, this guy loves a lot of instruments. Have you noticed that? Lear, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow, that's brave, isn't it? I mean, put that into context. They're standing before the king in judgment who has all the power and authority to execute them. And they don't back down, not announce. And look how this plays out. Nebuchadnezzar says to them, is it, is it true that you're not willing to worship? And it's a question. But understand, that's a rhetorical question because we can see in Scripture, he doesn't wait for a response. What he's doing is he's saying, Is it true that you really won't worship? Listen, when I fire up the band over here, you're going to bow down and worship. And they don't. And they don't even hesitate. As soon as Nebuchadnezzar gets done speaking, they said, we're not going to give you an answer. We don't need to. Our God will save us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship your idol. Now think about this. They... There's no indication in Scripture that God is going to save them, none whatsoever. So they're standing there in front of thousands being forced to make this decision, and they don't waver a bit. Well, in this, it simply furiates Nebuchadnezzar. He goes into a fit of rage. Scripture says... He does so so much that his facial expression was altered. He's that angry that his face has changed shape. That's mad. And he orders that the men be bound, that the furnace be heated up seven times hotter, and that they be thrown into the fire. Now, personally, I've always struggled with that passage. Why why seven times hotter? What's the significance of that? That always stuck out to me. I don't know if any of you have ever been around an intense fire. Now, I'm not talking a large campfire, I'm not even talking a large bonfire, but I'm talking an intense, roaring fire. When I was a, a teenager growing up on a dairy farm, we had a barn fire one night. We had an old wooden barn that was full of hay and straw, had cattle in it, and it caught fire. And I remember going outside that night with my dad to to go out to the fire, and you couldn't get within 100 feet of this building, that as we would approach the building, you had to go like this to protect your face from the heat. And the fire was so intense, you not only felt it on the front, but it would come around you, and you felt it on your back. The heat simply radiated around you. I've never been around a fire that hot before nor since in my life. It was so intense, it actually took a week for that fire to go out, that it sat there and smoldered for days and days and days with incredible heat behind it. When it finally was extinguished, I remember walking with my dad to the, to the perimeter of what had been the barn, and there were some remains of, of cattle, and some were burnt very badly, and to be honest, other parts weren't actually burnt that bad at all. But as we made our way towards what would have been the center of the barn where the heat was the hottest, there was absolutely nothing left but ash. Everything, everything that was in that barn had been turned to ash. Not even bone existed in the center of that fire. And I think that's the point. I think that's Nebuchadnezzar's point. You see, he's heating up that furnace seven times hotter, so when the men are thrown in there, they're not only killed but they're going to be consumed by the fire to the point that there won't even be bone. So nobody can come and bury the bones of these men, that they will be turned to ash and blown away by the wind. It will be as if they never even existed. Nebuchadnezzar is playing God here. He wants to wipe them from the face of the earth. This is absolute destruction at this point. And so the men are facing this this certain death. And... What happens next is that the the men are bound, these three men are bound, and guards carry them up to the furnace. Now the guards have never been around the furnace that's been this hot before, and as they approach the furnace, they themselves are consumed by the fire and die, and the three men fall into the furnace. And that should be the end of the story for us, right there. You see, and Scripture tells us, there's Nebuchadnezzar sitting there, and he's, I think in my mind, I see him sitting there very arrogantly, very indignant. He's proud of what he's done. He's passed his judgment, and he's watching the fire, and as he looks through there, he's looking at these three men, but wait. Scripture says that there's a fourth man in the fire who has the appearance of the Son of God. and these men aren't being burned up. Rather, Their bindings have been burned up, and they're walking around freely inside of the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar gets up, and he approaches the furnace. And he's he's looking in there, trying to figure out what is going on. How can this be? And join me in verse 26 to hear Nebuchadnezzar's response. It says that he called to them. He said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. You see, Nebuchadnezzar already recognizes what's going on. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair on their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. You see, where Nebuchadnezzar wanted to issue absolute destruction, God provided absolute salvation. It's not that these men were just saved from the fire. Think about this. They, not even their hair was singed. Their clothes weren't burnt. They didn't even smell like smoke. Now, I'm sure just about everybody here has been to a campfire. I know my family and I, in the fall on a cool evening, will like to have a campfire, and you put on a jacket, and you go out there. And then maybe a few days later, it's a little cool out, and you grab that jacket, and what do you do? You, kind of, you do that, and it still smells like smoke, right? Scripture tells us these men who were in the midst of a furnace didn't even smell like smoke. God's salvation was that absolute. Can you see that? It's a beautiful picture. And what's even more amazing with this is who witnesses this. Remember that list, that long list of people that were worshiping? They were told to bow down and worship, and they worshiped the idol. These very same people that just worshiped a false idol are now the first to bear witness to God's power. They see the true God and what he can do, and they bear witness to it. And I imagine at that point they're in awe. They don't know how to even respond to that. It moves them. We know that he even moved the king in verse 28. It said, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Let me read that again. And yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house is reduced to a rubbish heap, insomuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. That's a huge contrast from the beginning of the story. When we started chapter three, the king issued a decree saying that you're going to worship the image that he has set up. And now that same king, by the end of this chapter is issuing another decree saying that you shall say nothing offensive about the God of Israel, about our God. I think that's incredible. And it shows the amount of faith that these three men exhibited in what they chose to worship. And that's exactly where we're going to jump into our sermon notes this morning. So if you have your sermon notes, you can pull them out and it's teaching us to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what they're telling us is to boldly worship God regardless of the consequences. You see, they didn't worry about death. They didn't fear it for a second. They simply made a decision. And I think sometimes we can, we can look at Scripture like this and look at it as an all-or-nothing type scenario. You're, you're going to say, well, Michael... Nobody's going to be thrown into a fiery furnace today, and I would agree. And, but we have to be careful not to look at it in that context. It's in the choices that we make. Just listen to this, and I'll give you an example here. So we have to think about what worship is. So I thought, let me do a little bit of research, and just for fun, I went to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. The 2019 Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines worship as to honor or show reverence for a divine being or supernatural power. I think that's an okay definition. Um, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with it, but it's weak in my opinion. And notice that it's, it's not really pointing to God, is it? It's saying a divine power or supernatural power. Um, so it's kind of vague. So I kept digging in my research, and I found this incredibly striking. I found an 1828 Webster Dictionary. Same company, same word, we're defining worship. Listen to how it was defined in 1828. Worship is to adore, to pay divine honors to, to reverence with supreme respect and veneration to God. It also means to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. Now, when you read these two definitions, which one sounds more, it resembles more of the action of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The 1828 definition, doesn't it? It's much stronger. The wording is much stronger. So we have to ask ourselves, well, from 600 B.C., until 1828, apparently, worship was pretty well-defined. But in 2019, it gets a little vague. Why? Why does that happen? Part of it is just simply, over time, words change meaning. That's, that is true. Some words lose meaning, others gain in meaning, but there are words that stay the same over time. And in my humble opinion, I think Webster has altered a word. They feel the culture of the world and so they don't want to say God anymore, and they say divine person. You see, they're making a compromise in how they define the word. And that's exactly what we have to be careful of. None of us are going to be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. It's not going to happen. But I think each and every day we face compromises, don't we? We have times where maybe we're out in public at a restaurant do we dare pray for our meal before we eat in public? Or maybe we're at work and we have a coworker and we can sense the Holy Spirit speaking to us. We know that we're supposed to talk to our coworker, but we don't because we don't want to be laughed at by our other co-workers. It's a compromise. And that leads us to our second fill-in-the-blank this morning. That spiritual death happens one compromise at a time. We have to be careful with that. We cannot compromise with our faith in God. So let's look at worship is so we understand how we are to live this out this week. Worship is more than music. You see, every, every Sunday we come in here and we hear the band play worship music, and they do a phenomenal job, don't they? I mean, we have these incredibly talented musicians every week who volunteer their time, and they do a wonderful job. But do you recognize that that's not worship? That's a component of it, but it's not the entirety of worship. You see, Sunday morning, from the time you come in, you're greeted at the doors. Is that not representing the kingdom, how you would be greeted into the family of God? And then we spend time worshiping God. And then you receive a sermon, which is giving you instruction on how to live out your life as an act of worship. And then, what's the one of the last things we do? We always end with a blessing, right? And we say, love God, love people, serve the world. You're going out and acting in obedience because of your love for God. That's an act of worship. So Sunday morning is worship, but again, it's not all of worship. It's much more than that. Worship is showing reverence and gratitude to God. It's showing respect for all that you Do and do not have. In the 1990s, Sheryl Crow had a hit song, and one of the lyrics in it, I've altered a little bit here, but it went something like, it's not having what you want, it's being thankful for what you have. See, I think in our culture sometimes we can can try and keep up with the Joneses or we want the latest and greatest technology. We are just overwhelmed by getting the next big thing. And God is saying, just be thankful for what you have. Show reverence and gratitude to God for that. And lastly, it's all about the position of our hearts. God knows our heart. He knows if we love him. And if we love him and act out of love for him, that our actions themselves become acts of worship. So what we want you to do this week is to go forward And learn how to worship throughout the week and and really embody that and make it practical. So I'm going to close this morning with the same way that I opened. I'm going to go back to Romans 12. And I want you to think about the story that Daniel has told us. And what we can learn from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And now apply it in the context of Romans 12. Listen to this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, all of us, in view of God's mercy, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So as you go forward this week, I want you to be intentional. Think about when you're at work, how you interact with people. Think about when you're at home. Maybe you turn the TV off grab the whole family, have dinner at the table, and have a discussion. That's an act of worship. Maybe as you're out grocery shopping, you see somebody struggling to reach a shelf because they're too short. Help them out. That's an act of worship. Try and be intentional and think about how we can use what we've been given as an act of worship throughout this week. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you that You've given us an example of incredible, bold worship from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Father, may we learn through this passage and learn how to apply it in every aspect of our lives, and may it be pleasing to you in all that we do. Father, we ask that you hear these prayers, and we ask these things in your Son's holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Here, we like to close with a blessing. If you'd like to receive a blessing, please stand and hold out your hands like this. You are sent now to love God through your acts of worship. Serve others, love on people as you worship God. Figure out what that means for you this week and go forth and serve the world. Hug somebody, tell them you love them, take care.